0: Welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork. Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my extremely special guest, Ethan Evans. He is completing his PhD at Cardiff University in Wales. Prior to this, he obtained his first class degree in English literature from Bath Spa University. And that has to be a UK thing, because to me, that just sounds like the most luxurious university ever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was lovely. It had a lake and some swans. So it was very exciting.
0: Yeah, but it was not a situation where you go in and get a lecture while also getting a mani-pedi. That's not it. quite. No. And under the supervision of Martin Willis, his MA dissertation investigated George Eliot's engagement with queer masculinity in 1854 to 1861. And we know someone else who was engaging with queer masculinity <laughs> in the period 1854 to 1861. And that is why Ethan is joining us today for this scrap egg episode. This is every few chapters we take a departure from our regularly scheduled coverage of of little women to talk about anything that's in the universe of little women. And I would argue that George Eliot absolutely
1: is. Would you not agree? Ethan? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I think there's probably definitely a case that <laughs> Eliot might have read. They might have read each other. So I think so. Yeah. I want to hear more about that. But
0: first, Ethan, welcome to the show. And first question, what is your relationship to little
1: women? Well, my relationship to little women started Quite recently, actually, in seeing the recent movie in the cinema. And while watching it, just thinking, this sounds a lot like George Eliot. Because Eliot writes a novel called The Mill on the Floss in 1860, Mm -hmm. in which a character called Maggie Tulliver gives herself a very dramatic haircut. And I remember seeing Joe's haircut in the movie and thinking, wow, there's something here. There's something going on with haircuts and transmasculinity. So then I went away and I got myself a copy of the book. And <laughs> yeah, I'm a fan. I really want to write about Olcott. I think there's something to be said about the ways that kind of Eliot's fiction is rewritten and engaged with across time. And I think Olcott is definitely a fan of Eliot's as well.
0: That is thrilling. We haven't really gotten
1: into the things that Alcott was a fan of. So this is going to be a really fun conversation. Yeah, uh, I hope so. Because I think I, I did a bit of Googling today. And somebody said that one of the March sisters quotes from a George Eliot novel in Little Women. But I was trying to sort of find it in my copy of Little Women. So I think, yeah, there is a definite link to Eliot in the novel. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So next question then. We
1: do have to ask everybody. Yeah. Which March sister are you? I'm probably a Beth who would like to be a Joe. I think I could come across as quite a shy person, I think, around new people. I could be very nervous, but inside, I really want to have Joe's confidence. Like I think I, I say I'm like Ethan Loden. So when I get to 100%, hopefully I'd be a bit more like Joe. Mm-hmm. But I'm at the kind of shy Beth stage still, I think.
0: Okay. Yeah, certainly we love to have a Beth on the podcast. And now this is normally the part where I'd ask you to summarize the chapter, but as this is a scrap Bag episode, we're doing it a bit differently today. I was talking to you before the show about the podcast You're Wrong About. That's a podcast where historically one host comes in having done a ton of research about some misremembered event or person or thing, and the other person has been sequestered and is just coming in with all their assumptions intact. And so, I mean, I have to be completely upfront with you. I'm on the Wikipedia page for (laughs) Dora. That's okay. It's a good one. I've been on there too. It's okay. Okay. Mill on the Floss. Heard of it. Haven't read it. Barnard, heard of it. Haven't read it. Middlemarch. I have a friend who has a dog named after a Middlemarch character. Ooh, Cassabon, known as Bonbon, bon because it's oh, a tiny little white fluffy dog.
1: <laughs> I love that. I love that. I mean, there's a good thing here to say that dog name is already an improvement on Elliot's own dog name. She goes to great lengths to find a pug. It comes from uh-huh. so far, it takes so long. And after much deliberation, she calls it pug. So that middle of dog is already an improvement. Okay.
0: Yeah. So apart from bond that is The beginning and the end of what I know about George Eliot, beyond the fact that there was some gender stuff going on, Mm -hmm. that you have illuminated a bridge between Alcon and Eliot. So let me just start off with the very most basic question. I'm going to just sit back and ask you the Eliot PhD. like Who is George Eliot?
1: That's yeah, that's a that's such a great question. So biographically, Elliot is born Mary Ann Evans in 1819, the same year as Queen Victoria. And it's born in a village called Nuneaton in Coventry in England. Mm-hmm. And George Elliot is a pseudonym that is coined around 1856 when Mary Ann Evans submits her first work of fiction to Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine. And along with her partner, George Henry Lewis, they think up... This pseudonym, and they create this sort of <laughs> character of an effeminate, shy man. So they write letters to Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine, posing as this fictitious character, George Eliot. And then Eliot goes on to become one of the best selling authors of the Victorian period. She makes a lot of money. She's Queen Victoria's, one of Queen Victoria's favourite novelists. And she goes on to kind of publish books right up until the last year of her life. Mm-hmm. And I think she's fascinating because she's so unconventional. So her partner, George Henry Lewis, they're not Mm -hmm. legally married. Lewis is legally married to another woman. Elliot has friends that might describe themselves as being lesbian today. They are a couple who keep their fingers firmly on the pulse of news about queer and trans people in the Victorian period. I just think they're so fascinated because they Mm -hmm. resist everything Victorian. They are not afraid to live life on their own terms. And that's what really attracts me to them is that they have so much to tell us about the Victorian period, because I think we we still think of them as prudish, sexually repressed individuals, but actually (laughs) Elliot and Lewis lived life by their own rules.
0: No, yeah, absolutely. That leads me to my next question, which is, I think I heard you saying she for George Eliot. I yes. think I might have also heard of they or them or two. So, I mean, what's the gender situation? Let's get into that next.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And That's, again, something that I really am thinking about in my thesis, is Mm -hmm. what is the appropriate way to refer to the writer George Eliot? Grace Lavery, a brilliant academic, is thinking about the George Eliot pseudonym as a form of transsexuality, so that the pseudonym allows Eliot to resex the body. and. Grace slavery does a great job of just using George Eliot and, and doesn't use any pronouns at all. So that's one approach. Some people use she, her. Sometimes I use they, them, but grey slavery also points out that in itself is a choice. And so I think what my approach will be to try and not use any pronouns. But then in my thesis, I'm also interested in the pseudonyms around George Eliot. So there's multiple different pseudonyms that this writer uses of very different genders, non-binary identities. So yeah, it's a really complex question. And I don't know the answer yet. So Peyton, if you had any thoughts on that, or if anybody does have any thoughts on that, I think it's really important to be as sensitive to this as possible.
0: Yes. Well, I want to begin first off by saying when I said I had a friend who has a dog named bonbon bon. Ray slavery <gasps> is that friend oh like my gosh <laughs> plot
1: twist yeah totally makes sense yeah. yes
0: it's all coming together so yeah i think that's you've raised so many important questions i think so the first thing is obviously pronouns are they're so specific to each person i don't like to make blanket statements but like we should refer to these broad yes. group of people by these pronouns like i think it's very much an individual thing. I know with Alcott, when I wrote a Twitter thread that sort of blew up a bit, <laughs> which is how we met yeah. Alcott. And I was very brazenly saying he, him and calling him Luke. It's important to understand, like I, you listen to old episodes of this podcast and like, you will hear me calling, saying Louisa May Alcott and saying she,
1: mm. the thing
0: is, as I went through this podcast, reporting it and editing it every week, it just felt worse and worse to be talking about this person who identified as a man, longed to be a man, and calling that person she and her and using the name that Lou didn't use, right? Yeah, absolutely. I did get some blowback even from people who were sympathetic saying, you know, we shouldn't use pronouns that Lou didn't use in life. We should just say they, them. So I want to say, first of all, they, them is not like the default pronoun.
1: Of course, yeah.
0: There are people who deliberately and joyfully choose they, them, and then there are people like Lou Alcott, who every chance Lou could get was saying, I'm a man of all work. I'm a gentleman at large, really identifying as a man, period. I'm thinking of Anne Carson, who has another author who has said, what I really long for is that neuter gender, that in-between place. You know, there are people who yes. long for they, them. And then there are people like Lou Alcott, who, you know, it's not... Androgyny, it really is manhood, and I get why that's tough for some people to grasp. So I think it's so specific, and I so I'm just very curious about how you're gendering George. I guess I should ask: Am I gonna call? Do you want me to call
1: George? She? They? Like, what's the vibe? We're just doing anything. Anything goes. Yeah, I mean, I think that my project. The more that I read, and the more that I learn, and the more that I understand these figures, I think mm-hmm. I want to follow the approach outlined by Grace Lavery, and I think yeah. to try to always refer to George Eliot as George Eliot because towards the end of Eliot's life, Eliot asks that all of their work always be remembered as George Eliot. So mm-hmm. there was a recent yes. media campaign in the UK called Reclaim Her Name. and um, was for the- just going to say yes! <laughs> Oh my God. My first chapter is like, what are you doing? And I think that's totally not the right approach at all because I think it's really important to me that I don't assume what a choice would have been, would not have been. So to try and avoid pronouns at all costs, I think is probably what my thesis is going to do going forwards. Because also it's important to recognize, I mean, I'm not sure if I would describe myself as cis. I'm not really sure what my gender identity is, which has kind of come with the project. It's kind of the more that I think about trans and non-binary. But I also think it's important to recognize my position in this as well and to not be making decisions for other people. So yeah, it's a very sensitive issue that is definitely ongoing, but I think avoiding pronouns. And yeah, reclaim her name. But that's so interesting because... That's become the focus of my first chapter. It kind of happened as I'd written the first chapter. So I threw the chapter in the bin and I thought, no, this is what my chapter should be about. And yeah, for people who don't know, the Reclaim Her Name campaign, a liquor company called Bailey's teamed up with the Women's Prize. I know it's kind of an odd combo. And also I went on their website yesterday to just check the word in. And I had to say, yeah, I'm definitely 18 to be able to read their page because here you have to be 18 to consume alcohol. It's a bit weird. But yeah, so they republished I think it was 25 works of fiction, nonfiction to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Women's Prize of Fiction. And they took writers like George Eliot, George Sand, Vernon Lee, who scholars today are considering that these people might have identified as trans or non-binary or that their pseudonym wasn't as simple as disguising their gender or their sex, that actually right. the pseudonym is a place for play, for experimentation. And it's just really reductive to say that women couldn't publish or these people couldn't publish unless under a male pseudonym. Every book was republished with the name that the writer was assigned at birth, which would have annoyed George Eliot immensely. Oh. Um, (laughs) And also just there was no nuance there at all. There's no possibility that any of these writers could have had any agency in the decision because Elliot curates this personality. Elliot chooses the name and makes a very conscious decision. Nobody asks George Elliot or tells George Elliot that you have to hide your name. But there's something really interesting in that campaign because I can't remember who the poet or writer was, but there was a press release that said that they essentially were annoyed that the past was full of beards. And that was their (laughs) phrase for kind of these male pseudonyms. And then I thought, oh, I know something George Eliot wrote about beards, which might be interesting to think about because in the 1840s, Eliot writes a letter to a friend called Sarah Hennell about men's attitudes to women writers and essentially Elliot imagines that this man has proposed but he sort of says I can't marry you as you are because you're you a kind of masculine woman but you don't have a beard and I'm disappointed you know I kind of expected that smart intelligent masculine women would have a beard and you just you don't match up with in my mind what you should look like then hmm. Elliot writes back to say okay I'll grow a beard so you know, just a really fascinating moment because the whole beard discussion is Elliot kind of fighting back against this idea that the pseudonym is just a kind of convenient cover-up. The whole letter oh. about these beards is basically Elliot resisting this idea that masculine women have to look a particular way. Or, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, no, it really fascinating. So I kind of start my first chapter with that idea of Elliot potentially experimented with growing a beard. What do beards mean in terms of pseudonyms? Because also there's that kind of queer 20th century context of the beard, right. yeah, as the kind of protective, potentially lesbian friend that kind of comes in to make mm-hmm. a queer kind of person look as they, they're in a straight relationship. But yeah, really fascinating campaign mm-hmm. that then doubled back, but you can still access these books under mm-hmm. these. And I have a real problem with that
0: yeah I would generally agree and I think we know that Alcott also wrote under pseudonyms also yes. androgynous but on the cover of Little Women it says L.M. Alcott inside it says Louisa yeah. M. but on the covers it certainly does say L.M. and we know that Lou wrote under A.M. Barnard which was another mm-hmm. androgynous pseudonym we also know that Lou loved a beer. there's a yeah, yeah a costume party that he goes to or he's dressing as a monk and oh, I love that. Has a fake beard on and is like, every is telling his friend Alfie Whitman, who was one of the inspirations for Lori's, like, all the boys were like, come into the dressing room and help me get ready because yeah. they assumed I was a man. And the girls flirted in earnest until I took off <laughs> my beard when they shouted.
1: <laughs> so I love that, though. Yeah. I, 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 there's something so fascinating about kind of the beard and masculinity. <laughs> if you don't have a beard in Shakespeare, you're not, not a man. How <laughs> thick your beard is, how strong and manly, and whether you'll win the war. and What's so fascinating about that is that every pseudonym that Eliot coins or every personality Eliot creates, Mm -hmm. none of them have beards. Eliot's personas are the opposite of the Mm -hmm. hyper-masculine, macho, bearded dude. Eliot creates these alter egos that are shy and Mm -hmm. nervous, potentially Mm -hmm. masturbators. A lot of the descriptions of these figures match Emerge in medical discourses of effeminacy and kind of gender inverts and uh, (laughs) chronic masturbators. You know, there's the first pseudonym before George Eliot that is printed in the press is a figure called McCarthy. So George Mm -hmm. Eliot publishes a series of five short fictions in the Coventry Herald and Observer called Poetry and Prose from the Notebook of an Eccentric, (laughs) and they all purport to be this guy McCarthy's kind of, he carries a notebook around in a pocket and he makes notes as he goes about his life. He's a bachelor and he's in a David and Jonathan style friendship with his unnamed friend. And David and Jonathan are these biblical figures who form a covenant in the book of Samuel. They fall in love and it becomes a code word in the 19th century. So Oscar Wilde famously refers to David and Jonathan in one of his closing speeches during his trial. Yeah, so we're already being signalled that there's something potentially queer about McCarthy. But then also, Mm -hmm. in the newspaper itself, the articles are always surrounded by so many adverts for really questionable masturbation cures. So you could buy these books called The Secret Friend, The Secret Vice. You can send money to some random man on Fleet Street who will send you back a, a potion that apparently has worked you know, nine times out of 10. And then I just started to think that because in Victorian studies, we're trying to think whether there is a relationship between where pieces appear in a newspaper or magazine. Are they placed in particular places so that you connect things? And mm-hmm. McCarthy is nervous and shy and he has a tremor. <laughs> he dies very young for very bizarre, unclear reasons. And a lot of his symptoms of his, whatever his condition is match the symptoms in these books that they're trying to flog to concerned mothers and fathers about their masturbating <laughs> teenagers. So I just thought, wow, it's really sort of strange that this kind of first figure is link to that. I don't know if that's intentional or have I just read so much into it, but I think <laughs> there is something going on there. But no beard, mm. no, beard. Yeah.
0: no beard. No beard. No, it's interesting. You know, you say that there was this interest in the invert, the masturbator, kind yes. of the male homosexual for George elliot because lou alcott a lot of his letters to like alfie whitman they can take on that kind of male homoeroticism as well there's one letter where lou says i'm a gentleman at large i'm a man of all work and at the end of this letter proposes that lou and alfie disguise themselves as sailors and run away and sail the world (laughs) i love that i want to do that i want to do that but it's very much leading into let's be boys you know that element of the relationship is very pronounced and lou also wrote this fascinating you could write an entire thesis on this short story called my mysterious mademoiselle which is written from the perspective of an older gentleman who is a young lady comes into his carriage and is weeping and saying she's being pursued by an abuser and please he must help and then the abuser comes by and the mademoiselle pretends to be asleep the older gentleman pretends this is his daughter and they evade capture and it's getting dark, and he's looking yeah. at her. He's all saying, like, "She's so beautiful. I want to kiss her, but I must restrain myself." And he, f- they fall asleep on each other's shoulders. And when the older gentleman wakes up, there's a boy teenager in the carriage, and he goes, "Well, I disguised myself. It worked. I got out of that bad situation."
1: Wow. wow. You still want to kiss me? And the old man's like, "Sorry, <laughs> like- Gosh, you did know, that. That's made me think of something else as well, because I'm sure there's a trollop story that again revolves around this idea of a British man they're always in the 19th century if there's anything really homoerotic it's kind of got to happen somewhere hot you've got to be yeah. kind of abroad in in the sort of most wide general terms and I'm sure this Trollope character kind of falls in love at a hotel yeah with someone that he believes to be a woman finds out after I think actually kissing <laughs> yeah there's something really fascinating about that the kind of foreign travel people in disguise.
0: In disguise or just you know the allure of this androgyny or a woman who might be a man
1: absolutely (laughs) and I think that's something that I've been thinking about I had had a scary PhD exam this week and something that came out of that was that I think Grace Lavery says this but pseudonyms it just, it's the wrong word. It's, it doesn't describe what is going on and what it means for these people in that I think we have all these labels and connotations that come with pseudonym, things like disguise, masking, hiding. And I think this is kind of wrong. Actually, we need more than just terms like cross-sex pseudonym, same-sex yes, pseudonym. Yeah. I think for Elliot and for Elliot's husband, Lewis, kind of mm-hmm. pseudonyms are more than just names on the page. And so I'm very much trying to search for a sort of new terminology for this. And one of the kind of terms I've been thinking about is the concept in trans studies of transcestory. Because Essentially what I'm trying to do in my project is find a way to account for the other pseudonyms that come outside of the George Eliot pseudonym because Grace Levy is doing a great job of George yeah. Eliot. And I'm like, I'm just <laughs> going to leave that to Grace. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's brilliant. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, and try and kind of find an angle around that because I'm really interested in these earlier pseudonyms. So how do they fit in? Are mm-hmm. they kind of mm-hmm. part of a sort of a trans family? Are they completely separate from George Eliot? So I'm trying to think of these earlier figures through this idea of so that some of them do anticipate the George Eliot identity. So McCarthy Mm -hmm. sounds very similar to Eliot and Lewis's letters to Blackwood because George Eliot is also shy and nervous, potentially a masturbator. And so sometimes there are crossovers and divergences. Sometimes the identities are completely different. So Eliot's first pseudonym, age 15 at school, Eliot is supposed to be doing maths in their maths notebook, but it's instead it decides, no, it'd be much more interesting to do some stories and some poems. And the name on the notebook is Mary-Anne Evans, this kind of Frenchified version. And in the 1780s, 90s, around the French Revolution time, Mary-Anne's a figure that kind of emerges as a symbol of the revolution. And Mary-Anne is a masculine figure, a kind of, tra- I guess, maybe a trans-mask figure in the sense okay. that... Kind of embody values of both femininity and masculinity. And so it was really interesting to think that then 15 year old Elliot is potentially linking themselves back to this kind of figure. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I was just like, yeah, I hate maths. I totally want to do some stories. Let's do this. And also, this book went missing. And some English academics walked into a secondhand bookshop and was ruffling, rumbling through the kind of box of odds and ends and found it. I was like, why hasn't that happened to me? Uh, why can't I walk into an Oxfam or a really nice independent bookshop somewhere and just yeah. uh, stumble across an awesome manuscript?
0: May we all be so lucky. Yeah, we have about seven minutes left. And I so I really sure. want to get into, you said that there is a case to be made that Lou was a George Eliot fan. So tell me more about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I know that there's lots of scholarship out there comparing these figures. And the more I was rereading Little Women recently, I was starting to notice the traces, say the haircut. So in The Mill and the Floss, Maggie Teller gives herself a very dramatic haircut, a very different context to why Joe takes the haircut. So Joe raises money to help Mrs. March. Elliot's Heroin's haircut is more of a rebellion but they're both described as kind of queer haircuts they're both described as masculinizing Joe and Maggie Tulliver Mr. Brooke, there's a really interesting character in Middlemarch called Mr. Brooke. he's a bachelor who's like really fascinated with kind of he's got all these sketches from Italy and all these big dusty books he's always inviting his niece Dorothea's male suitors he's like come in come in come in spend time with me in my study and look at my little books and things he's really interested in spending time And so there's all these kind of overlaps in terms of characters that seem to reappear in different contexts. Little Women feels very Eliotic to me, and Elliot feels very Olcott to me. So I do wonder if there is this kind of transatlantic conversation, because Elliot sparks up a correspondence with Harriet Beter Stowe, who writes Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is very much... Loved, by the way, like everyone in the audience. Oh, good. Oh, good. So I think there's definitely a case to be made for them being aware of each other, because Elliot's very much aware of what's going on in America at this time. And yeah, I think it would be really interesting to think about them both from a queer perspective, because there's lots of work thinking about them from more kind of heteronormative approaches. So it'd be really nice to readdress this relationship and think about yeah, kind of to what extent is Little Women queer in George Eliot and to what extent is kind of Eliot's later <laughs> novels queering back in response.
0: Did I completely mishear you earlier? Or were you saying that there's an Alcott character who quotes George Eliot?
1: Yeah, so I was just kind of Project Gutenberg in really hard, find F, and <laughs> I failed. But I believe that, yeah, Eliot is quoted in Little Women or in, I think it's still included Little Women, Good Wives. Yeah. My edition of Little Women has them both together. Yes, but I definitely think that Eliot would have read Alcott. So yeah. Hopefully, who knows? Maybe one day yeah. say we'll see some more kind of scholarship on this collab. Yeah. Well, do you know what the exact quote was? I will find it, and I will okay. let you know. Yeah. You know, and I, I think one
0: last point, I wanted to get into this. You know, we talked about the reclaim her name campaign. I think there's yes. a misconception that authors of this period, women just couldn't be published, period. Like they had mm-hmm. to pretend to be men. Mm-hmm. And I can certainly say for Alcott, it's disrespectful. First of all, the Alcott's were best friends forever with Emerson and Thoreau. Alcott's father published books. They had no end of connections to the publishing industry. Lou Alcott actually published his first book at the age of 17. Wow! It was a book of fairy fables that was originally written for Emerson's daughter. So this notion that it was an uphill battle to be published, that Alcott would have had to publish as a man, was... Like, it was just simply not true. It wasn't in line, you know, the hustle that he was going through to publish these books and the connections that he had. He was in arguably a very privileged position. I'm just wondering, was it the same for Elliot? Could Elliot have published under Marianne Evans? Like, why the deliberate choice then?
1: So I guess... One answer to that is that because Elliot and Lewis were not legally married, that there was the potential to cause scandal and the uh, the potentially that scandal would overshadow any of that. But actually, that's what some people say. What I kind of think as well is really important to note here is that trans people existed throughout time and have always existed and Elliot and Lewis particularly did know about trans people. They followed two news reports in the British press about two trans people, one of which was Dr. James Miranda Barry, who was a trans trans man and military surgeon in the British Army, really high ranking, had a very Mm -hmm. famous argument with Florence Nightingale. In 1865, (laughs) when Barry died, against his wishes, his body uh, was examined, and that was then reported in the press. And in the 1870s, the Lewises also followed the Fanny and Stella trial. Which is two mm-hmm. trans women actors who oh. were put on trial in, I think, 1871 in an attempt to prove that they'd had sodomy together and <laughs> they couldn't prove it. So they were acquitted. <laughs> and the Lewis's followed this and they understood that, that the trans was not- people. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I think it's really reductive to just say, yeah, that it was convenience or disguise. And we shouldn't rule out the possibility of gender play, experimentation, mm-hmm. and self discovery
0: yeah thank you for that clarification thank you so much for being here ethan it has been a total pleasure where can people find you online
1: you can find me on twitter at my very precocious 13 year olds (laughs) twitter handle which is at author ethan i am not an author but maybe one day (laughs)